Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Victory Over Self Radio. Victory Over Self Radio, diving into all things athletics. We discuss topics ranging from sports performance and weight training to business and leadership. What we're trying to do here is just bring together experts, leaders, and innovators to help us push the field forward. On today's episode, we have somebody that I would absolutely call an innovator. I would call an expert and somebody who's definitely pushing forward ideas. And uh, I'm going to call him a, a torchbearer as uh, we'll kind of get into it. Somebody has since passed, but I truly, truly feel that if uh, if Louis were still around, he would just be absolutely overjoyed with everything that our guest today, Michael Fahey, is doing with his athletes and spreading the good gospel and the message of conjugate. So like I said, our guest today is Michael Fahey of, uh, just give him a Google there, tons of internet fame, but one of the big reasons we wanted to bring him on is what he is doing at uh, his high school and with athletes and how he has adopted the classic powerlifting conjugate method and all the wonderful things and how he is uh, training athletes, getting gains and making improvements there. So when we heard about him, when we were seeing the content that he was uh, out there and producing, heard him on a few podcasts, Ross Blair and I said, we have to have the guy on. And ladies and gentlemen, here he is. Welcome to the show, Michael Fahey. Coach, thank you so much for coming on. We are very grateful and really excited for this one. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. So how things kind of typically work around here is one of us sort of find a guy and then we'll listen to some mm-hmm. stuff and then we'll text each other in our group chat and say like, this is the dude, this is the guy. And so that was Ross uh, in this one. He had listened to your part two or two part podcast uh, with Bird Sports Performance, uh, which by the way, oh were God. absolute Joe Rogan-esque marathons, oh, yeah. but we loved it. We were excited. So <laughs> I told my wife I'll be home around 8 p.m. tonight just so we could keep going just as a heads up there. Good, um, good. But have an IV right yeah, now. no, perfect. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I took some Jack 3D to make sure I was ready for this one. Um, but we don't like to do typical long backgrounds here, but how I just kind of wanted to start things off was please just explain where you are right now, the weight room setups that you have right now, um, and kind of what summer training looks like for you. And then we'll kind of just start digging into some other questions. Um, well, I'm in Tallahassee, Florida, which happens to be where I'm from. I've lived in a few other places over the last, uh, 15 or so years. Um, but I'm back in, back in Tally, North Florida. So it's super hot, um, extremely humid. Um, you know, the, the weather is sort of a concern, especially this year as, uh, I don't know if it's an El Nino cycle or what, but we've just been getting hit with buckets of rain and really intense storms that pop up every couple of days. Um, the school that I'm at is called Florida State University School District or Florida High for short. Um, it is technically three different schools. Uh, they're public charters run by Florida State University. Um, mostly, I think, as an easy... I think it was established at least as an easy sort of uh, way for the education um, and the um, teaching courses and stuff there to have easy access for research and um, for teaching placements for students. Um, and it's kind of morphed and grown a little bit. It's, it 
got too big to be housed on campus at Florida State. So it's a few miles down the road in a neighborhood called Southwood. Um, it's a very, very nice area. Um, we've got probably the best high school track um, facility okay. uh, in terms of our actual track, I think, because they just use like leftover materials from Florida State, I think, which Florida State has a really nice bane on uh, surface track that's very fast. Um, I don't know if our high school is the same material. Um, probably not, but it's still very, very nice, uh, nice and cushiony compared to some of the other high schools around town. Um, and that track is probably a quarter mile from our weight room, which our weight room is only about 1400 square feet. Uh, it's very small. It has a big roll up bay door that opens up to a small patio area. And then there's sort of an adjacent field. So when I got there, um, Almost two years ago now, I had been at another school that had plenty of space and had very little equipment. Getting to Florida High was almost the opposite. They had lots of equipment packed into a very, very small space. So we have about 10 racks in that 1,400 square feet. Wow. Um, and additionally, they have three reverse hypers. They've got a big you know, dumbbell uh, rack through the middle of the weight room. Um. They had five sleds from Florida State football that had been donated. Um, and they've got still a storage unit that has some other equipment that they're trying to find space to basically set up a secondary weight room. Um, when I got there, um, basically the football team, which is is probably the best in our area, um, they had had a lot of success and they um, were largely the only team that used the weight facility. Um, and primarily because a lot of coaches were off campus, um, a lot of the other teams didn't get into the weight room. So when I came over, um, I was actually tasked sort of with working mostly with the other sports that don't have, uh, the kind of size of staff to run their own weight program and don't have coaches who are, uh, you know, sort of educated in, in the weight room. So I work with, I've worked with, I think eight teams. We've had some coaching turnover and stuff. Um, so at any given moment, I have like six teams that are pretty solid with me. And then we're waiting kind of to see who the next coach, you know, what they're going to do, um, which I hope that they, you know, choose to, to lift with us, but you know, if not more power to them. Um, and I do all of this for free. I have multiple day jobs. Um, I, I'm finishing another film. I either own outright or have ownership stake in uh, three other companies that basically sell a bunch of stuff that's all sort of fitness and sports related. Um, but I have nothing to really like make a pitch on right now other than, you know, you can buy a bunch of random commodities from me on Amazon and some other places. And um, I get paid whether I'm pitching them or not. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, a lot of the equipment that we use um, is my personal equipment that I brought in. Again, I'm in a very unique uh, 
position when when we want specialty bars i go get the specialty bars and they're mine and if at some point in the you know future i am to leave or move or go anywhere all of my stuff will come with me um but when i want something for my kids if i can at all afford it um like you know if a 60 inch ronin jump box goes on sale (laughs) and it's late at night um, that's going to get got. Um, so I, I bring stuff in for my kids. Um, and I try and leverage some of the connections that I have to make resources available for them because I'm lucky enough to be in a position where I don't, you know, I don't need the school to pay me, which is good because it's a public, you know, it's a public charter. So all the pay scales are based off of what teachers make in the state of Florida which teachers don't make anything in the state of Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, I've been on other podcasts in the past where people talk about, you know, well, they pay coaches a lot in Florida and I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> they pay coaches decently in like Georgia and Texas, to my knowledge. Correct. Uh, Correct. Florida politicians tell you we're a low tax state, which means we are a low public servant uh, salary state. Um, okay. But yeah, no, that was perfect. I okay, super grateful for that answer because hopefully for listeners, what comes across is um, if you're doing this for free, like you said, you are, it's just passion. Like you truly love it. And so mm-hmm. uh, hopefully yeah. that's going to come out here. Um, you're not doing it for other reasons that other people might be trying to do, like climb a ladder or whatever else. Uh, you described your weight room. So there's no ladder. To climb. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. No ladder to climb. So we'll, uh, we'll have an idea of the logistics. And then if you're mm-hmm. purchasing, buying your own equipment, bring stuff in, there's hefty reasons and purposes for that. It's not like you have this yeah. massive budget where you're kind of, you know, able to spend it. You have to spend it type of thing. So we'll, uh, now that mm-hmm. the, the table's kind of been set here, we'll, we'll pass over to Ross with some questions. Um, and I'll, I'll give a fair warning of, uh, Ross is incredibly excited for this one and did a, a, a ton of research behind it um, because he's uh, he's willing to admit uh, where some other people aren't of like, we're always still in the process of tinkering and trying to figure it out. Um, so for yeah. his new setting that he has, um, the logistics and everything like that, really excited to kind of dig in and uh, hopefully get some good answers for him. So with that, Ross, passing it over to you, brother. I've listened to at least 12 hours of podcast, if not more. You have uh, so whatever much podcast. <laughs> I know, I know. And well, I, well, I did I a seven hour episode one three once. times. I think I That's fell asleep unreal. in there. <laughs> yeah, I, re- I repeated the bird one twice, uh, a couple of the other ones. I mean, I've, I'm doing a lot of driving right yeah. now, so I got a lot of time. And so, uh, so with that, kind of setting the stage here, coach, is you know, where do you start? Like when you have your, your middle school kids and you have your youth kids, those high school kids, you know, where are you starting kind of getting them down that conjugate path? Um, the first thing that is sort of, I want, I want all the kids on the same path as quickly as we can. And the main impediment is not, it's not really their strength or their physical development. It's, is the child, you know, like mature enough to conduct themselves in a reasonable manner and kind of fit in with the rest of the group? Um, I've had a lot of a lot of problems with like sixth grade boys, 
Seventh grade, they're noticeably better. Um, eighth grade, generally, they kind of fall in line pretty quickly. Um, for girls, um, basically, like, girls will largely, the girls are much easier to coach than, than guys. They will largely yes. just do whatever you ask of them. Um, and especially the way that I coach, um, I, I don't like to, you know, yell and sort of bark orders and stuff. I, I like to have conversations when, you know, when possible. I'm 6'3 and 285 pounds and I can be scary, like without trying. Um, so I'm usually trying to sort of tone down and mute myself to make myself like relatively accessible um, to even, you know, a, a very young new child. Um, but uh, so the first thing is, is mentally and sort of behaviorally, are they mature enough that they can kind of handle not being the center of attention 24 seven, you know, can they, can they kind of just like, are they at a point where they can kind of sit back and observe or be sort of a secondary participant, you know? Um, so that's the big thing. I find that that's usually not, uh, you know, it's occasionally a problem with girls, but it's usually not a problem. Um, with boys, it's a much bigger issue. So I usually have sort of like, especially once the school year starts and I'll have a big influx of like, you know, like say sixth grade wrestlers and sixth grade baseball players and stuff. Um, when the room kind of gets, when we start getting north of say 25 or 30 people, um, I'll usually send the smaller kids who are less mature um, they'll usually get sent out to the field to drag some sleds and do some sled work. Uh, cause there's nothing that you can really do to, you know, they're not going to get hurt with the sled. They're not going to be able to drag it fast enough to do anything wildly dangerous with it. There's no loaded, you know, spinal compression. There's no eccentric loading. Um, so sleds are, sleds are phenomenal for, you know, for anyone, but especially for younger kids and because kids these days, um, and hopefully that's the only time that I use that kind mm -hmm. of phrasing kids these days don't have the level of GPP that say, you know, in the early two thousands, late nineties, when I was growing up the parks were always populated, you know, um, you couldn't ride by a park without seeing kids playing. You couldn't ride, you couldn't find an empty basketball court in the city. Um, you couldn't find an empty, you know, football field or an empty baseball field. Nowadays, you get some kids who kind of get thrown to the wolves into travel ball systems and stuff and are probably doing way too much. That's way too specific, way too often, you know, year round. Um, and even then they don't have GPP. They just have that sort of SPP for uh, uh, that singular sort of activity or task. Um, but you don't find kids just, they're, they're not as strong, like kind of coming out of the gate. Um, and they've had a lot less movement variability and stuff. So, um, so when they're especially young, we'll put them on the sled and, um, if they are 
mature enough that they can get in with the rest of the group, even if say they're, you know, I have, I have right now a group of kids that um, I very lovingly refer to sort of as the misfits, like a, an island of misfit toys. Um, you know, some of these are, are kids who, for whatever reason, they either never played sports and just kind of, you know, heard about the weight room, heard about the kind of stuff that I was doing and, and were curious and wanted to come by. Or we have kids who, for different, you know, medical and health reasons, um, can't participate full, like they can't participate competitively in their sports or in a sport. So they kind of, you know, exist with a team um, in like a manager capacity or something. Um, so their the training becomes their outlet and their own, you know, their real exciting means of, of competing. But, you know, those kids, you know, like I, I've had kids who I don't think when they were young that they played, you know, like, I don't know if they ever went, you know, I don't, I don't know if they know, you know, they came to me and it was their first time in a gym. And I, I believe that probably includes like the jungle gym. Yeah. You know, like I just don't know if they were ever outside or ever really ran around. Um, so now they're, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, and they're doing something athletically for the first time. And they have a lot of like, um, either movement restrictions or just very wonky sort of senses of coordination. Um, and so I want them doing the same program, but obviously like right off the bat, I'm looking at, you know, whatever kind of modifications we can make. Um, I have 12 inch hard boxes that I built. Um, and I have three inch, um, wood sort of toppers that we'll put on that to elevate the box. Um, and then on top of that, we've got four inch, um, foam pads. They're like wheelchair pads. Um, cause they're softer than like elite FTS's softest pad. Um, so for leg drive and stuff, but so, you know, if a kid has really bad hips and, and, you know, no hamstrings, um, you know, and they have no upper back, you know, we might try and put an empty bar on them and it's not quite working. And then we'll regress all the way down to, you know, goblet squats on an 18 inch box if we need to. Um, or I have a lot of, like, I work with a lot of volleyball girls. There's a certain body type that I've noticed with volleyball, um, girls who are, they're tall, but they have sort of like the shoulder and hip kind of like width of like a regular sized girl, but they're almost like stretched to, you know, five ten or, or taller. And they have kind of like, they're so narrow and yet they have these like long backs and torsos. Um, and because in volleyball, you know, especially if you are less athletic, you move slower, you know, you, you can't reposition quite as fast. If that ball say goes back behind you and everything is overhead and they're basically, you know, and they're playing travel ball or they're playing, you know, sand volleyball in the off season, they have so many things where their uh, upper spine is, is sort of hyperextending all the time while they're landing. So I'll have girls who have never lifted a weight in their life and they've had pars fractures. Um, 
And it's relatively common, not like, you know, the majority of girls, but in, you know, two years of doing this, I think I've had three girls come in who had a PARS fracture before they had ever really like, they had never put a bar on their back and they had a PARS fracture already. Um, so for them, it's going to be, they're hitting a lot of sleds, um, doing a lot of belted marching, which I'm huge on for everyone, but they, you know, that'll be sort of more of their mainstay. And when everyone else is done, you know, box squatting and it's going on to maybe deadlifts or reverse hypers or something, which they'll also hammer reverse hypers, um, will pull those boxes out and use those boxes to kind of prop them up on an old school, um, belt squat with a loading pin and a, a nylon strap, um, in the way that, um, I know Donnie Thompson all the way up through his compound. And I'm sure at the Bowtie cottage now, um, he used to talk about how he liked, he liked the old school, the actual belt and loading pin and carabiner set up, um, propped up on two boxes better than like the West side ATP or, you know, the elite FTS tiger belt or any of that. Um, what is it? The squat max or something. He's, he likes one of the belt squat devices, but it's that it's the big platform one with the weight underneath and the bands yeah, and yeah, yeah. the hole in the ground. Basically it's just a real fancy way of doing that same thing that I do with a $20 loading pin and a $5 mm-hmm. strap. <laughs> okay. No, I like that. So you, you've talked about just on other podcasts that, you know, we get them in the lift in, they've got their GPP, all that good stuff. We trust them with the bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're starting to hit threes and ones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, and we kind of know the concept of, yep, you can develop strength and we're expressing strength. Mm-hmm. You know, we, you know, we're kind of surfing both sides of those, those things. You know, some coaches are going to hit fives and threes. Others are going to hit threes and ones. What's your thought process behind the threes and ones mm-hmm. versus, say, fives and threes? Because uh, you kind of get the di- uh, different coaches again that at the younger level they're going to say they might want fives and threes, and then as they get older they might want threes and ones. But what's your thought process there? Well, so for the last month and a half, um, I've actually been doing something different. Um, I change things all the time. There's always at least one thing in our training, usually two to three things that's kind of uh, like a running experiment and. If I like it after, you know, a month or two, we'll kind of stick to it. And if I don't, um, it'll go away, you know, sometimes forever, sometimes just for a short while. Um, so when I was younger, I, I started on conjugate when I was like 14 years old. Um, I was benching a hundred we had one and a quarter pound plates. So I benched 112 and a half pounds and, Two and a half years later, I benched 370. Um, I was squatting 87 and a half pounds to a 12 inch box. And a few years later, I was squatting 500. Um, now, obviously, I got older. I grew a little, not that much vertically, mostly just I started putting on weight. Um, but back then, we did very much a sort of west side split. Um, almost to a T and on our max effort days, I would do 
like eight reps with just the bar as my warm up, and then five reps with 95, and then three reps with 135, and then three reps with 185, and three. So I would just keep going up in threes until I couldn't get threes anymore. Then when I pop up to one, so I always had you know every week, and I'd switch the bar every every single week. Um, but again, my dad was my coach. I had already met Louis Simmons. Dave Tate had done multiple seminars in my literal garage. Uh, so my background was a lot different than most people's and my sort of like passive knowledge that I had acquired about all this was way higher. So conceptually, I could understand everything. Um, I'm very big on in everything that I do, because I, I do all these things that like on the surface look different to everyone. You know, I, I do a lot of marketing work. I make movies and documentaries, which is just telling stories. And then the training to me in my head, these things all work the same way. Uh, you know, it's all just dealing essentially with the, the fallout of time. You know, uh, a story is just putting into context what time does to a person, time and events, sequencing, that's all the same. That's also the, that's also training. Um, that's also, you know, like to market, uh, to market a product effectively, you have to tell a story and a story just needs to have a beginning and an end. Like it just needs two things to start. Um, so the way that my mind puts all these things together are the same. Um, if I get a kid who intellectually sort of can do that, where they can they can kind of see things for what they are, I can give them a more advanced kind of way of of training, and it'll work great. It's hard to do, and the you know so the way that I train kids right now in the team setting is everything's a little dumbed down. Um, it's not the same way. You know, when I get a, a college kid who's going to train with me after uh, the high school kids leave, they might rotate exercises every week. Um, we might go run and I look at what they're doing and I say, you need this. And the rest of their training is all just going to be it's going to be very sort of reactive and all problem solving using this conjugate sort of construct. But it's going to be solving their individual problems both what their problems are physically and then sort of cognitively how they interpret sort of that data, you know, down to, you know, I've had kids where I could give them seemingly like inf an infinite level of cues. And, you know, if I told them bring their elbow in, when they tweak their elbow in, it didn't affect anything up or down the chain. They could kind of keep everything right. So I could just like mold them to exactly what I wanted and that kid would go from, say, a 225 bench to five weeks later, a 315 bench. But that wouldn't be every kid. You know, most kids, I give them one thing and I have to give them like one abstract kind of point uh, and watch them kind of try to and continue giving them an abstract point. Um, and in was that an internal cue? where you're trying to like feel something or trying to direct their intent in this sort of nebulous abstract terminology. 
that you have to find like the right thing that keeps everything that you want sort of in order, keeps it in that order and gets the kid to kind of align all towards the same directive. Cause if you try and say, you know, you know, like you need to be, you need to, you need to push longer through the ground or, or you need to, you need to get more forward on your toes when you jump or, or you roll off the front of that foot they're going to completely lose all sense of like what their knees or their hips or their upper body is doing their heads. You know, they're going to be down looking at their toes the whole time. So instead of giving them these sort of micro adjustments that way, I would say, you know, you need to drive longer through the floor. You need to just push harder and you know, they're, they're going to, they're going to push hard. That also get, takes me to uh, anyone who has a force plate stop, stop caring at all about jump height start just telling the kid to get a higher you know wattage or power number the kid will jump entirely different because they're not thinking about getting up off the ground they're just thinking about translating force through the ground which is ultimately what you want and that's ultimately going to give you the better adaptation and i wish i had a force plate strictly for that i would never ever ever tell the kid about jump height at all i would just how much, how much is going through the floor? Um, but yeah, I can't remember exactly what you asked. I know that I'm near it, but I don't think why are you hit? Why are you hitting threes? Yeah, why am I hitting threes? singles versus fives yeah. and threes? So, uh, so actually like, so what I've done before and what I talked about on birds podcast, cause I started talking to bird, I think the week that I kind of changed all this, um, but so growing up, I had always done threes until I got to a one. And as a 155 pound, six foot, you know, 255 pound freshman, that worked great for me, even though I could, you know, even though I couldn't squat a hundred pounds. And even though my bench press was, you know, sub 115, but intellectually, like I understood those concepts, you know, I was weak but I could connect all of these things in, in time and space very easily. Um, then when I got back to coaching years later, I went in and tried to train kids the way that I had trained and it wasn't like working right. And I had forgotten over time that I used to have a, a three rep PR that I would do in route to going for a new one rep PR. And so I went back and I looked through um, my dad's big into this. He was CSCS, uh, certified, um, back in the early two thousands. I went back and I looked through my old training logs that he had meticulously kept. And I was like, Oh, I was doing a three rep max, you know, cause I had, when I started at this new high school, I had two brothers who came in and one was benching 295, one was benching 305. The one who benched 295, five weeks later in a meet hit 335. The one who was benching 305 five weeks later in a meet with a pause hit 365. So, you know, and I was like, cool, this is how it's supposed to work. Like when I was at Westside, you'd see stuff like that happen. You know, you'd see, and this is raw. This was in Florida where they don't use gear in high school. Um, but you would see stuff like that. Like, you know, I didn't. I didn't lift for about six months, like period. And then I benched 405 for the first time. And all I did in between was watch Dave Hoff bench every single day on, <laughs> uh, you know, 
in beautiful 4.6K on my computer and watch Jason Coker and just seeing this imprinting over and over and over again. When I went back and benched, my you know, my technique was better because conceptually I was like confronted with this thing every day. Um, and ultimately your mind doesn't understand, you know, like your body feels what it's doing. The adaptations come from your mind interpreting what it's doing. You know, your, your brain is what's sending all those signals back to the rest of your body to, to make adaptations. So theoretically, at least, um, if you can conceptualize something so deeply the you get to a point where the brain can't tell the difference between what's happened versus what you thought, it's just almost like a dreamlike sort of state. Um, and that's why dreams are so vivid and you run and get tangled up in your sheets and stuff. It's because your brain, whatever your brain perceives, that's what your body also feels. Um, but so, uh, so anyways, I started to realize, wow, most kids are not like me in that sense. You know, most kids aren't really paying attention to the details. Um, and I also started to notice basically every kid who was sort of below a threshold of, of you know, the lower 200s. I had, a, I had a swath of kids who were benching 225, and a few weeks later, they're benching 245. And then a few weeks later, they're benching 275, 285, 290. And I'm like, they're on the train and it's just rolling. They're getting predictable, you know, results like I'm used to seeing. Um, and at this point in time, I had a training group that uh, was a kid in his 20s, a woman in her 40s, a man in his like 60s who would just train with me. And I'd have random power lifters and stuff who'd come drop in. Um, so I'd be, you know, doing board presses with five something in my garage with this just really weird assortment of characters. And I was like, for all of them now, this like the woman could bench well over 200 pounds, but for all of them, you know, doing one rep worked, but for these young kids, I started to notice the less they benched, you know, the less they squatted, the less they deadlifted, the less stimulus they were getting out of it. You know, and if I gave you a weight room full of kids, you wouldn't expect that the 17-year-old who benches 300 pounds would be the one that you would most easily progress. You'd think that it would be the 14-year-old who's never touched the weight room before. But I was having the opposite effect. And that was always sort of how, like, the deeper into the training you got, the more the results accelerated. And even with my own training, like, in my own life, that's how it, how it kind of always worked. And I realized it's because, you know, when I was, say, benching 300, 300 is less of a potential stimulus than 400. So every time, you know, as I got stronger, it was like I was leveling up and now I could I could touch bigger and bigger stimuluses. I could handle a more potent stimulus. Um, and so long as I could manage my recovery and not overdo it on anything and get hurt. I got, you know, it was easier to get from 405 to 455 than it was to get from 315 to 365. And that was easier than it was to get from 275 to 315. You know, there's always sort of been that pattern within my training of if you can just stay healthy, it actually accelerates. Mm -hmm. And then it gets to a point where like you're 
you know, it's so easy to burn yourself out. And even looking at, because a lot of my friends are power lifters, you know, um, looking at, you know, I've, I've, I had Hoff in town this, uh, this weekend we were hanging out and, you know, to, to watch him train, I've seen him go, you know, from mid 11s where like, that's a struggle to smoking, you know, 1300 pounds. Like it doesn't take that long. The problem is that his stimuluses are so big that it's very, you know, it's balancing sort of on a knife's edge of it's very easy for him to overcook himself and overdo it. These kids were the opposite though. These young kids, um, I realized like, what do you do when a kid is too weak basically to access stimulus that's going to give him like that kind of neurological response? That's what I was looking for was, you know, like, beyond just giving them more hypertrophy because that's a very slow road. Um, and I'm impatient. I, you know, like I'm not, I tell the coaches and stuff that I work with. I tell the kids that I work with, you know, there's a reason I do this for free is because I'm fascinated by, you know, the transformative potential of it. Um, I'm not here to just run a workout. I'm not here just to kind of babysit you and give you something that's going to keep you busy. I was like, I'm like, I'm getting something out of you. I'm giving something to you or I'm not here. You know, I can, if, if it wasn't about getting stronger, getting faster, jumping higher, throwing harder, swinging faster, if it wasn't about those things, I could make a ton of money if I just put these same, you know, intellectual resources into like, into just pursuing money. You know, I could go be rich very quickly, but money's not really worth much. Like uh, anyone can get money. You can get money anytime you want. Um, but getting, getting strength, getting speed, that kind of like, that kind of thing that you can only like unlock and earn. That's what excites me. Mm building things is what excites me and building people is more exciting to me than building anything else or putting movies together or whatnot. Um, but so all that in a roundabout way was to say that I realized I was missing something. And so as I started to look back at my old training logs, I was like, Oh, no wonder I forgot that we would do threes, which instantly ups our volume, you know, nearly triples our tonnage. Um, but provides, I, I talked to my dad and I was like, you know, Hey, why'd you have me do this? And he goes, brief maximal tension. Now in the last few years, like Jared Bidney has, you know, spoken a ton about brief maximal tension. And I'm lucky enough that, you know, Jared's one of the guys that I know and have access to. Um, but so I started looking at what Jared was doing, um, Cause I was, I was already con I had, I'd been to Jared's facility. I'd been to explosive mechanics in Peachtree city. Um, so these were all, it was just connecting dots that I had connected in the past. And then I'd kind of forgotten about as I just progressed in my own training. I didn't need those dots anymore. I was at the point where I was going, I'm going to do a warm up set. And then I'm literally going to do a, you know, a single with 135, a single with 225, a single with 315, a single, you know, I'm going to jump a plate and just do a single each time. Um, 
I didn't need that anymore. But when I started working out with younger kids again, they need, you know, their top set, their peak output wasn't high enough to cause the kind of stress and fatigue that they needed to get the same stimulus. So the answer for them is we have to kind of pre-fatigue them, you know, in that three to five rep range um, to get that brief maximal tension response on that sort of last rep or two where they're actually grinding it out. And then again, the crazy thing is that, you know, and my kids see this with me. I did, I did board press with them yesterday. Now they were doing sets of three. Uh, I was like, you know, I'm just going to work up to a single. Um, and they saw me two weeks ago after not working out basically for my daughter's eight months old after not working out for eight months, you know, they saw me hit a couple of reps with four Oh five. The next week hit a couple of reps with four fifty five. the next week, 500 the next week, 505. Um, and every time I'm going, you know, I could go 600 like right now, but like, I could make that jump, but I wouldn't be able to control it and kind of keep it in line. Um, and I talk to the kids all the time about those same sort of concepts of like, once we get you strong enough, I won't be telling, I won't care about your three rep anymore. I'll just, you know, Hey man, we're just going to try and, you know, if you're squatting 600 pounds, which I've had kids do on a safety squat bar before the, the kid who squatted 600 he went from 500 to 600 in like eight weeks, you know, and there was a spring football season in the middle of that, you know, like, um, but those, those single reps were becoming such a large stimulus for him that it didn't matter that he wasn't getting uh, all that same volume that some of the other kids were. Those in like he was suddenly able to access such an efficient neurological stimulus um, that would do so much for him that it was, you know, then it became, you know, like, well, now your form has to really be on point. Now, you know, now we have to stop because your legs may still be, you know, you may have gone from 500 pound legs to 700 pound legs in two months, but your back only went from a 500 pound back to a 600 pound back. So now we've got to, now we've got to deal with like the, the different rates of adaptation and fallout within, you know, you as one organism. Um, but for the younger kids and the weaker kids and the smaller kids, what do you do when you have kids who can't access those kinds of stimuluses? You have to turn to brief maximal tension. Um, additionally, dynamic effort work. If a kid can't produce force, then producing force quickly it doesn't offer them the, you know, they aren't afforded the amount of time needed to, to produce enough force needed to produce the adaptation. So when we would do dynamic effort work on our squats, what I talked about on birds was, you know, Louie talked about 0.7 meters per second to 0.9. Well, those guys are strong. And the idea there was basically that you're squatting at roughly a third of what you could jump at the speed that you could jump at. So you triple those, those speeds and you've got, you know, well, someone who's like a mid 30 inch jumper, 
that he was squatting his his power lifters like they were pretty good jumpers. That's the speed that they were that they were squatting at. Well, if you got a kid who squat or you know who jumps twenty inches on a just jump mat, and he can't produce much force, why limit him further by, you know, if he can't jump high on the mat or he can't jump high on a vertex, if he can't jump high, then he also can't move very fast. So if you take that same idea and you go, we're going to work at roughly a third, all of a sudden now you're talking about someone who's, you know, their average jump velocity is in like the mid ones and you're slowing them down to, you know, 0.4 to maybe 0.7, somewhere in there. As they get faster and they develop and they're a more mature athlete, sort of that ratio starts to raise and their speed work starts to go up. And eventually, you know, like if they, this is the same way, you know, like Dave Hoff squats with a lower percentage of straight weight. Matt Winning has talked before about, you know, lowering the, the percentages on speed work. You know, like a lot of power lifters who have gotten very far talk about this. And that, you know, like the disconnect is that people seem to think that means lowering it all the time. And it's no, it's lowering it in context to where they are in their sort of cycle of development. So when they can't produce much force, you have to give them longer to produce a higher percentage of their force. There's also the thing impeding them from producing and, and displaying that force is that they're so young. They don't understand, you know, they have no, it's not that they don't have the capacity to move it faster. It's that they simply lack the understanding and the know-how. And also giving them more force and a greater resistance is helping them to, you know, learn how to move. It's slowing them down enough that they have to stop and sort of think about what they're doing. You're giving them a, a greater like proprioceptive uh stressor at the same time too it's just a matter of of uh kind of figuring out what they can kind of intellectually handle within that you know um so all that being said you know i don't work with football and i'm work you know most of my males are wrestlers um and the ones who play football i don't see a whole lot so our, you know, most of my wrestlers are under 200 pounds. They're relatively small guys, comparative to what I'm used to. I'm not getting 250, 300 pound lineman types. So I'm getting, you know, kids who are anywhere from 70 pounds to 190 uh, for my males. And then I've got baseball players. And a lot of them, our baseball team is, is really young. We had basically an entire class kind of transfer out. Um and so they would all be seniors right now. So like, I, I don't know if we have a senior, I think we might have one. Um, so like when you play our baseball team this year, it's going to be all, and, and we're, I'm at a small school as well. There's um, the previous school that I was at was close to 3000 kids. It was the biggest school in the County. I'm now at the smallest public school in the County and it's K through 12. So, you know, we have starters on our girls, varsity soccer team who are in sixth grade we have you know eighth graders ninth graders who are starters on our on our varsity baseball team um each class of kids is very small so right now having all of these kids who you know now i was a former football player i was a shot put you know discus thrower i was always a big kid i graduated 
245 pounds. And now I'm getting these very small kids who don't have that same kind of like, they don't have the GPP that I used to have. They don't have the lifting age and training age that I, you know, that I had at the same point in my life. Um, and they're, you know, and they're so tiny. So they're tiny and they're less physical. Um, so in order to give them the fastest road to improvement, I have to meet them where they're at. Um, and like, say during the summer, you know, you're working with baseball. These kids have tournaments every week. You know, some of them, we have kids who they'll do two tournaments in a week, you know, so they'll show up and they played eight games the day before. Um, and you know, they, they don't eat when they're on the road and stuff. So they come back and their weight's fluctuating and stuff. Like they just come from culturally, like in terms of the sport culture, a completely different place than me. Um, so while we were getting good results with that, um, you know, I, we got to a point where I was like, well, I just lost, I just lost like my older baseball kids who were kind of, you know, like they weren't by my opinion strong, but they were, you know, stronger. And I lost some of my older wrestlers who were pretty strong. You know, I had a kid who was 154 pounds and could bench 300. Um, and I was like, well, right now I've got a, I've got a makeup that's very young and they are way stronger than what the kids were coming to me at two years ago in the, at the same age level. But still, they're not at that point where um, a true max effort um, is as efficient as it could be. So I talked to I talked to Zach Goodman, and I've done this before, kind of trying to run more sort of what Jared has run. But I talked to Zach, and he's doing a lot of fives, fours, threes, um, and kind of waving that. And so I started using the same basic wave. I added in, I added and tweaked some things um, as far as like we, we put in board press as a, as a secondary. So they're going, you know, a heavy three sets of three at the end of each, each bench set or each bench day um, after their bench press so that they could still get that kind of, you know, overload and that neurological stressor that I was now missing from taking out a true max effort day. Um, so right now we're, we're doing basically like four brief maximal tension days in a row, but we're still sprinting. We're still jumping. Um, we're still doing other things that are at different speeds, but so we're getting brutally strong and then doubling down and making sure that we're getting our jumps every single day. That was a phenomenal answer. Uh, <laughs> So you kind of, so you kind of touched on it with the baseball kids, obviously in the summer, they're doing all the travel and and whatnot. How are you handling this for your kids in season? No. Uh, are we still hitting, you know, really true threes and fives? Are we kind of going sub max, like a 90% rel of intensity? Uh, once you get in season, what are your thoughts? Um, my thoughts are basically these kids are never really out of season. Uh, I'm, I'm, and especially like 
since I'm not dealing with football, uh, you know, like football, you have to deal with the fact that the kids are also getting physically beaten. You know, like they're, they're getting car wrecks willfully, you know, four days a week. Um, so you have to pull back, uh, significantly for football, um, for wrestling, we're going to lift pretty hard. You know, like the whole thing is, you know, we've built this enormous base of GPP. We don't want to give it up. So they can get pretty deep into their season before we have to start pulling things back. And because we're jumping every day and I'm monitoring those jumps every day, when I start to see their jumps as a team starting to crash, um, or even just as an individual player, I'm going to, you know, if I see like, hey, you've had like, you know, if you've had one awful day or you've had a few days that are kind of, you know, you're usually jumping 30 and you come in jumping 25, you know, like, okay, we're going to, we're going to pull this way back. I'm going to cut everything in half. I'm going to tell you like, you know, okay, you know, instead of doing five sets today, you're going to do three. And, and, you know, I, I might tell them like, Hey, don't worry about your assigned number or whatever today. Like go, you know, go way under or just move on to your reverse hypers, go do sled instead. Um, but you know, with baseball, they play more during the summer than they do during the spring. Um, so why would I back off? Additionally, uh, I have radar guns and, um, I'll time their, their swing and their, their velocity off the tee, uh, or their throwing velocity a lot at the end of workouts. The kids who, you know, the kids who get in late, they're not as fast. Their, their velo's down. The kids who are there, you know, grinding through the whole workout, their velos are higher than on days where they didn't work out at all. You know, um, there's, there's been studies done, you know, if you had a heavy, if you had a heavy workout in the morning, you run better in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. You might not run better immediately after, but you run better Several, you know, if you worked out that morning, you might be faster in the afternoon, pending the distance. So, you know, but a short distance, you're going to be faster accelerating. You're going to be potentiated from that workout earlier. So if you got a game at seven and we're supposed to lift at two, uh, you know, like I might cut the volume down on the accessories, but I want the main thing to go heavy because I want you to hit a bomb that night, you know. I want you stealing a base. Why would I take that away from you? I went out to the St. Louis Cardinals in 2016. It was opening day. Um, it was the same thing. They were maxing, you know, it's opening day and they're, they're doing a lower body max, you know, three, four hours before the game. Like why these kids are younger. They're essentially, you know, from a hormonal standpoint, they're recovering as though they were on steroids so why would, and they're, they're not that strong. So why would I take that away? Especially for a game like baseball, you know, like they're going to sit in the dugout for half the game. The other half, they're basically, you know, the pitcher is going to be working, but the rest of them are just going to be standing there. No, it's perfect. I, I really like, so the main sport I work with is hockey. And I mm -hmm. like how you mentioned with football, they're getting, how'd you word it? Uh, they're dying is, is basically how you worded it, right? They're, <laughs> they're getting into car accidents every practice, yeah. every game. So uh, 
bringing it down. And I was a football player and I worked for the NFL. So like, yeah, <laughs> I, I love football. That's the sport that I, that I like the most and have the most experience training, but that's the reality of it is, uh, they're unique hockey. Obviously like I'm from Florida, so we don't even consider hockey. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's not a like, I'm remind anytime someone brings up hockey, I'm like reminded, Oh yeah, that's a thing. Oh, that's a sport. People do yeah. that, you know, like, um, but yeah, uh, most sports are not like that, mm-hmm. you know, track and field basketball, you know, basketball will wear you out, but like no one, I never see anyone ice their neck, you know, after a basketball game. Yeah. You know, like that's very, very good point. <laughs> the basketball players aren't, the basketball players don't like hanging out in the cold tub, mm-hmm. you know, um, our wrestlers, you know, they they get wrestlers get worn down. Football players just get beaten up. Yeah. Would you say at your high school level with wrestlers, their weight cuts aren't too crazy or too severe where in season you could still kind of give them a stimulus that they'll adapt to? Whereas I've been in some wrestling room where it's like wrestling rooms where it's like, Hey, here's your stimulus. Oh, you have to cut 15 pounds tomorrow. Useless, right? You're not going to adapt to any yeah. of this. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Prior to prior to coming to Florida High, I didn't have any wrestling experience. Um, so I don't know how it is everywhere else. Uh, I can only judge based on the condition of the kids when I first got them. Um, but in the two years since, like, we get stronger through the season. Love it. Then they accelerate. Like when they come off the season, they accelerate a whole lot. But the first like two thirds, especially of the season, they're getting stronger the whole way. Um, and then some of them, as they get just late into the season, um, uh, especially the ones who win a lot of matches and, you know, go really deep. Uh, we had, a bunch of state placers. We had a kid who was ranked number one in the state Jeez. as an eighth grader for most of the season. Um, and then just had kind of a rough, uh, rough outing um, on the final day of states. Um, but like those kids, I mean, for a couple of them who we had a couple who kind of were having to go just to get on, you know, just to get onto the mat when you, especially when you get deep like that, where you're limited on how many kids you can enter. We had a couple kids who, um, it was just about like, Hey, we're just going to try and maintain as much as this, as much of this as we can, you know? So we're just going to try and give you something heavy to, you know, stimulate you, but don't, you know, like you're not going to PR today. Probably, you know, if you get a five pound PR, like absolutely just shut it down. Um, but that was only, that was really only one kid, I think this past year, um, who, uh, again, was probably wrestling like two classes down from where he had the year before. Um, and solely so that he could, you know, so that he could, uh, place at States. Um, but that was a long that was something that he knew that he was going to have to do 
like the entire off season before. So he started that cut even really, really far out. They, you have to weigh in, I think like weekly Mm -hmm. for a certain amount of time and your weight can never fluctuate up or down. If you go up too high, then you automatically bump up. Um, like even if you're not wrestling. So like if you're just in between things, you, you end up bumping up. Um, But yeah, I think I think I answered. No, that. no, that was great. Just out of pure curiosity, wanted to hear kind of your opinion on on yeah. wrestlers and everything like that. Yeah, we see a big surge, you know, two to three weeks after mm-hmm. when they like finally could eat. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. When you know they're they're still like they're getting a little stronger. You know, they're they're hitting like a five pound PR or at worst like tying their old PR. But then all of a sudden. Like you have, you know, they're jumping at the beginning of the workout and they'll, they'll come in on a Monday off the weekend and suddenly everyone's jumps are up like two to three inches and you know, most of them hit all time PRs and they don't, they don't feel like anything's different. And you go like, oh, y'all are f- like, you finally recovered. Yeah. 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 Uh, so really the last two I got, and then I'll turn it over to Chris and we'll see where it goes here. Uh, number it's kind of, I thought of this as you were talking about reverse hypers mm-hmm. and different things. Do you have a, I'll call it a, <clears throat> a low back protocol. So if I've got a, you know, an issue going on and obviously you're box squatting and things like mm-hmm. that. And sometimes that can bother the kids. Sometimes not it really just depends. Yeah. Uh, do you got a, you know, a protocol you got that you like? Um, yeah, it's, it's first off, like, so we, we also, we do almost all of our squatting is on safety squat bars. Um, and so that puts a lot more demands on the upper back as well. So I find that a lot of kids, you know, when they have issues, it's either it's the lower back or it's the upper back simply just, you know, not being able to support the weight. Um, in either case, um, if it's, you know, if it's uh past the point where like a simple, you know, technical correction is going to, is going to do something or adding three inches to the box is going to do something. Um, then while everyone else is squatting, they're going to go do belted marching and they're, or they're going to do sleds. Um, they're going to do lighter reverse hypers for sets of 30 while everyone else might be, you know, really trying to push the weight. Um, and doing sets of 20, like I've got volleyball girls who, one of my girls who can touch 10, one on a vertex, she does her reverse hypers with, um, four and a 25 on each side, uh, for sets of 20. She's a monster. Um, and I, I don't tell, like, I also never really tell the kids that they're strong or they're fast. They're just like getting there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, yeah, that's better. But, um, cause if they, like, if they think that there's a concrete number that will make them strong, most of them are really just sort of training because they want to be at a certain point. Like they, they feel like if I get to a certain number that will give me fulfillment. So I, I don't ever want to encourage them that there is such a number, um, you know, if there's a number, it's all in my head and I don't let it out of my mouth. Um, 
because then they end up, you know, they end up like the like AJ Roberts in West Side vs. the World, where he trained with Brent Mikesell his whole life and watched Brent try to, you know, almost kill himself trying to squat twelve hundred, and AJ was squatting four hundred because he squatted with Brent. He didn't think that 1100 was big. So he soared from 400 up to 1100, but he thought that 1200 was the top of the mountain. So he hit it and then had no idea what to do after. Mm-hmm. And, you know, immediately, like couldn't see himself progressing after that because he had built that into such a high mountaintop. Um, but yeah, so when someone's got a hurt lower back, they're going to do more sets and more reps or reverse hypers at a lower intensity. They're going to do more sled dragging. Um, usually at a lower intensity, everything's going to be about getting, you know, blood flow. You know, most lower back issues are, are they linger because when you look at a medical chart, you know, all of that white and gray tissue is white and gray because it doesn't get much blood flow. So, uh, between the sled, we're using, you know, their glutes and hamstrings to just pump blood into their back. They're going to drag for long sets of, you know, five to 10 minutes at a time. Um, they're going to do long sets of reverse hypers, you know, at least 30 reps at a time, low weight. Again, tons of blood flow, but also that dynamic tractioning as their weight swings under and it gently kind of pulls that pelvis down and decompresses the bottom of the spinal column, allowing spinal fluid to drip through easier. Um, it's also why I'm not really ever concerned when a kid lets the weight swing on a reverse hyper. Cause it's like, cool. He's just getting more of that dynamic tractioning. That's extremely unique to just that machine. And that's the whole reason why Louis built it in the first place was for that right there. So I'm not going to take that out. I don't care. You know, no one gets points on the scoreboard for their reverse hyper weight or for the reverse hyper form. So, um, and then if they, if they can tolerate it, we're going to do 45 degree back raises and they're, you know, usually it's going to be that there's a certain range of motion within that, that they can do, or they can't, you know, that they can do without pain. And we're going to start just kind of quantifying where the pain starts. This is with any injury. We're going to do tons of blood flow stuff, tons of sled, tons of stuff like that. And we're going to try and figure out what is the, what is the end range of motion of like where it's painful versus where it's not. Mm-hmm. And we're going to work down, you know, as far as, as much flexion as you can get, or as much extension as you can get right before it, it starts to, you know, become painful. And we're just going to try and work right there because you're the training effect that you're going to get is going to be 15 degrees past that. Right. In both directions. So, if after two weeks you can go that extra 15 degrees without pain, well, now you're getting that effect 30 degrees past where you were. And after a few weeks, you know, and you do that for enough weeks in a row. And now all of a sudden it's, you have full range of motion without pain. If it's an upper bond or if it's a, and then we're also going to do uh sort of at the end of every lower body workout, especially, um, and anytime a kid has, you know, some sort of issue, um, we're going to do a lot of body tempering. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't have big rollers where I'm at. I, I do have some rollers. I haven't brought them in because I've, you know, I'm always concerned that administration will find me a little too crazy. So I have these big, uh, they're lawn rollers. Mm-hmm. 
for like pressing grass seed into the ground. Those are great because they're pretty cheap. I got them on Amazon and they have a big like handle that kind of wraps around them. So they're a big steel, round steel drum, a lot sort of thicker than your average uh, body tempering roller. Um, but we fill them up with sand so you can fill them up, you know, 300 plus pounds if you want. But they disperse over a wider area. So especially when I'm working with, you know, kids um, to kind of disperse that that pressure out over a broader area and kind of lessen the intensity of it that way. Um, but so I used to do that at the old school with uh, my roller because we had more room there. So that was housing. It was never a problem. Um, but now we do what I call uh, penguins. And they are named because they look like a mother penguin guarding her egg. Um, we'll use 50 or 100 or 150 pound sandbags. Gently lowered on top of the athlete, placed on their back. And then a second athlete stands over it so that their calves are kind of holding the, the sandbag in place. The second athlete watches the... Uh, they're guarding the sandbag as, as though it were the egg. And they're also looking at the clock on the wall. So they'll do two minutes of that. Every kid is terrified to do it the first time. Um, and after they get up, every kid asks, can we do that every day? Um, but so if they've got lower back issues, we're going to start off, you know, light sandbag, the 50. And if they're big enough, you know, they can progress to the 150. Um, and that's just going to make them feel better. We're always going to do that at the very end because I don't want to, um, especially if they've done a lot of reverse hypers because then they'll go home and they'll be like, you know, Oh coach, my back hurt. And you go like, did it hurt like a pain? Like, did it feel like you were being stabbed or was it tight? And they'll always go, Oh, it was, it was like, it was really tight. It was really stiff. It was really sore. And I go, yeah, that's just because we did a lot of reverse hypers. So you got tight do the sandbag at the end, do our penguin and that'll help to loosen you up before you go home and, you know, hop in mom's car and go through the drive through or whatever it is, uh, you know, go home and, and wake up the next day, you know, standing all stiff, uh, simply because that was a, a lot of volume and a lot of pump. Um, so if it's an upper back issue, I'm going to have them do, um, so Blaine Sumner mm. used to do this thing, you know, if you, if you're familiar with Blaine, um, I think every strength coach should like just have a roster of like older power lifters, yeah. like to know because good older power lifters have broken themselves mm -hmm. and in order to be good and be older, you have to know how to fix yourself when you break. So like Donnie Thompson's an excellent resource. Again, I'm lucky enough that like I'm good friends with Dave Hoff and Anthony Oliveira and, um, you know, sort of between the, the three of them and in between, you know, knowing Louie for so long, I've seen basically everything that you could have done to yourself in a weight room. Um, and I've seen guys come back from basically everything. Um, but so for the upper back, um, with their safety squat bars, you know, you, you'll get somebody who 
Their lower back can kind of hold the position. Their legs are fine. Their legs can handle much more weight, but their upper back cannot. Um, so they, they, they feel kind of like compressed or crunched um, because they just lose that, that sort of upper arch. So when that's the case, and again, this is something that I see a lot with like the volleyball girls who have sort of longer, very slender torsos. Um, if that's the case, if it's really bad, you know, we're going to look at goblet squatting, um, or front squatting, you know, we're going to try and raise that capacity up, uh, a little slower. Um, but, uh, what I saw from Blaine that I've, I've used successfully is we'll put like a band around the front of say the reverse hyper, uh, Blaine would do it leaning into like his Catham glute or his ghd ghr whatever you know i've known about these things since the 90s and we called them caffeine glutes back then um but he, he'll put that safety squat bar on and he'll kind of lean over the pad and just kind of arch and round his upper back and that's you know especially when you're squatting with younger kids with a safety squat bar that's what they're going to have trouble with mm-hmm. is that especially when they sit down on the box they lose tension they kind of look down and as soon as they do that, the bar starts to roll forward on them and kind of, you know, bends them over. So first thing we want to do is explain to them that, like, we need to keep our head up and kind of be driving back with our neck and our chest up. You know, we tell them, you know, if if you were in an opera hall or something, you want somebody in the balcony to be able to see the logo on your shirt. Um. You want to you want to be fighting back against that bar the whole way. Don't let up on it. Don't look down when you go down. The box is there. The boxes are plenty big. Uh, we, you know, cock them forty five degrees, so they're like a diamond. Um, so it's right up on the kids' heels as they squat. I have a cat that's getting too close to the frame here. Um, but. Um, so if a technical correction doesn't, doesn't help it, or they're still sore, we're going to do a penguin at the end, sort of more on that upper back. Um, and that's going to leave them at least feeling good. Um, but ultimately we need to raise that upper back's capacity. Um, so two of the things that we'll do are to put a, we use a lot of black monster mini bands. Um, so, most of them are not big enough that the calf ham glute thing works the same for them. Um, but if we stand them straight up at the reverse hyper, and again, I'll take those like three inch boxes and stack those to get them to the right point to where uh, basically that pad is, is sort of at the bottom of the rib cage. They'll have them loop the band from the handles back over their neck and they'll, round forward and arch up working just that, you know, trying to segment their spine just to that upper back, which is also a fun thing. Um, because even though I'm gigantic compared to all these kids and I'm old, you know, uh, I can segment my spine, you know, pretty well. I'm from Tallahassee. So I grew up, I mean, he's, I'm the same age, but you know, T-Pain was always doing that dance where he'd <laughs> do all that um, with the neck thing. But so uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm of an age group that's done that before. Um, and I'll realize that even like the, even the athletic looking girls can't segment their spine. Um, but so we'll do that either with a band pulling them forward or just have them stand in place and with an empty safety squat bar, you know, again, for a lot of reps, trying to build volume. And I find that after two to three weeks of that, that all of a sudden their, their backs can handle significantly more. Um, and they, you know, they usually don't catch up fully to their legs, but they catch up enough that, you know, squatting becomes workable and accessible. Hmm. I like yeah. that. All right. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. All on right. In a, in a, in a, so a big reason why I'm very interested in, in what you do and, and kind of how you blend it all in is because you're still always talking about jumping and sprinting mm-hmm. and, and putting it in the program where sometimes the coaches aren't and we're just talking about lifting and we're not doing the other things that we need to do with it uh, in there. So with your sprinting, mm-hmm. what are you chasing first? Because we do a bunch of sprinting, got all the segments, all that good stuff. Are you chasing a specific segment first? So like, for example, okay, we want the zero to 10 to be great. Then we're going to work on the fly or we, you know, do we want to pursue the fly first and then we're zero, you know, whatever. Uh, and then if you could lead off, how do you start them? Are you doing a three point? Are you just standing there? Are you doing a lead? How do you start the sprint? Cause personally I do a lead mm-hmm. just because I can, I can run a thousand kids through yeah. it. Uh, and we do a two and a half foot, start now because i've done both a hand start and the two and a half foot lead and the times kind of wash in terms of whether it's faster or slower so i'm just going with the two and a half and that's what i go with Mm -hmm. but yeah if if you've got i don't know if again if you got a segment you specifically push first that you try to do or we're just sprinting the sprint and we're gonna see what we get so i look at um i look at everything as Number one, we lift because that's what you have to do to get faster. If you go into my weight room right now, there are no bench records. There are no squat records. Um, I know all that stuff and the kids know all that stuff, certainly. Um, I track all that stuff. But if you look on the whiteboard, there's a list of the guys who run 20 plus and the girls who run 18 plus um, there's in my way, again, my weight room is very small right now. So there's not a whole lot of room for many lists, but um, occasionally there is a, there's a list, you know, taped up of girls who have jumped like 25 plus and guys who've jumped 30 plus or guys who've jumped 36 plus. Um, I give out shirts. If you hit 36, uh, plus, um, on the, on the just jump mat though. We don't use the just jump mats anymore, so it doesn't really matter. Um, so the, the, the sprinting and the jumping is how I know that everything else is working. And that's ultimately what we're chasing. Um, you know, uh, making people stronger is easy. It's stupid easy. Um, and by extension, making them jump higher and run faster is easy. 
but you have to pay attention to the slight differences in how those things work for, for running and jumping. Um, you know, we do a ton of coach. Can I, can I just interrupt? Sorry. I just, yeah. like, I totally ruined your train of thought and interrupted, but I have yeah. to know how did you get here? Okay. You are powerlifting background, right? Obviously you play sports and all that. I'm never power. Okay. Well, highly trained <laughs> football player, yeah. thrower, highly trained in uh, it and educated. How, yeah. how did you get down this route of, in your weight room, you don't have the the West Side PR board of bench squat deadlift, but you have performance indicators of sprints and jumps. Were you always that way? Was there a shift for you? Like, how, how is it that you're talking about what you're talking about? Because because personally, I wasn't expecting that. Right, West Side versus the world yeah. guy. I'm expecting here's our squat numbers. You just need to increase your squat, 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 and then. That's, well, did that's you, not Did it. you ever talk to Louie when you went to Westside? Oh, yeah, uh, all, all the time. What did you talk to Louie about? Yeah, so how can I make my hockey All Louie talked about was track. Yeah, yeah. He he loved track and uh, wrestling, MMA, uh, things like that. Yeah. yeah. But but yeah. yeah, I just – I did. How, how did you get here, right? Why, why do you have this perspective and other coaches uh, may not? Um. I, I think a lot of that, again, it goes back to number one, circumstantially that I had access to all of this stuff very young. Okay. So like, you know, I, I say all the time, like conjugate is my native tongue yeah. and conjugate really is it's so broad and it's so expansive. Everything else exists within conjugate. You know, conjugate is the toolbox. It's bigger than a conjugate or bigger than a toolbox. Conjugates like going to Ace Hardware. It's it's the whole damn store. You know, other people fight about, you know, which which item on which aisle does the most things and does what whatever best, but it's it's really, you know, like it's this whole idea of you have some basic tools that almost every job requires that you lean on, you know, like if, if you're a construction worker, like every job you either need, you know, a hammer or a drill, you know, like you've got to, you're, you're putting a screw or a nail into something. So like there's, you know, endless arrays and variation of, of how you solve the problem beyond that. But the, the tools in the center of it are relatively the same. You know, um, I've talked to, you know, I've talked to Jamaican sprint coaches before, you know, like when you, when you look at, when you look at the people who are the best at sprinting, the people who are the best at lifting, the people who are the best at jumping, strip away, um, a lot of the language is just semantics and it's, it's completely arbitrary. You know, we, we create these constructs that like lock us into a way of thinking and they're not real. You know, like if something works in multiply powerlifting, it also works in track and field. You know, if it works in sprinting, it works in jumping, it works in lifting. It all has to work the same. Ultimately, you know, like for sprinting, you know, like from step one, 
think about how long the ground contact is for your first step. It's also like the framework that I have is that, again, everything exists within time. And time, speed is just an expression of time. You can't have speed without time. Um, and it's like, this gets into a lot more than, than lifting, but you need to have a, a lot of people, they get locked into thinking that if I say strength, that I mean a squat, mm-hmm. a squat's telling me what's happening at the hip, the knee and through your back. Great. Um, but if I go to a hitting coach, what's the hitting coach going to, going to look at first? Where's the bat? It's the bat that hits the ball. Everything else is up the chain. So the first thing that a hitting coach is going to do is manipulate how the bat contacts the ball. When I see people talk online about like, you know, oh, well, so-and-so is strong, but they're slow. Guess what? They're, they're not strong. They couldn't be strong. If they were strong, they would be fast mm-hmm. because fast people are strong. They are strong like fast people are strong at the point of impact that's where the the strength is going to translate best right and fastest you know your your deformation reformation so if you get locked into only analyzing strength as say a squat um now my best squatters are also my fastest kids and when i say best i mean in a relative sense my hundred, my fastest girl who runs 19.7 miles per hour with a short lead in um, and broad jumps eight, nine. Wow. Uh, yeah. She's a sophomore. Holy. She weighs 115 pounds. Greek. Yeah. She, with a safety squat bar, squats 226 for four. Oh, holy. Okay, so, you know, that's with a safety squat bar. So convert that to a regular bar. We're talking, you know, an extra maybe 5 to 15%. So well over two times body weight. Um, two times body weight easily for reps. And she's my fastest girl. My next fastest girl weighs 120 pounds, squats the same, and runs half a mile an hour slower. And you can follow that down. If I just ranked my girls in order of their their relative squat, that's how fast they are. Where my rankings will differ from everyone else is every single day those kids are ending their workout with heavy loaded carries on upper body days, wide stance marching or sled drags on their lower body days. Why wide stance why wide stanced marches? And heavy wide stance marches. We're using a loading pin. Again, that same belt squat uh, setup. Where those 45s are stacked up in between your calves. If you took a wide stance and then you tried to march, you can't march with very high knees. If you have a, because you'll fall over. And because of that, you're also going to shift forward on your foot. So you're going to be on the ball and toes of your foot the whole time. You're going to be working your foot, your ankle, your calf the whole time. We're going to do that for, you know, maybe three rounds of two minutes. And we're going to jump in between. 
But so if you're doing that twice a week, I mean, the majority of our volume is dedicated to our foot, ankle, and calf. Everyone else talks about strength above the knee only and where you don't run on your knees. You know, not even Oscar Pistorius ran on his knees. There's you know, like you don't run on your knees. You have this whole like, you know, some coaches talk about like the spring ankle. I, I've never I never have actually done that stuff with my kids. But it amazes me when people start talking about things like that, that I'm like, what have y'all been doing below the knee mm-hmm. this whole time? Because like you again, I've I went to Westside for the first time in 1999. And they had me dragging with long sort of power walking steps, dragging the sled in the parking lot. And I was 12 years old and that wasn't new. Like that's all that lower leg, that lower leg strength. You've never met a a fast person who has poor lower leg strength. You know, Randy Huntington, who I I think most people would agree is is a pretty good, you know, strength coach and sprint coach. He talked about how one of the first things with uh, with Sue that he, you know, who ran nine, eight, three at five foot five or five foot six with, you know, short legs relative to his height. He talked about how he was weaker at the calf and ankle when he first got him, you know, when he's running like 10 twos, he was weaker at the calf and ankle than a lot of his female sprinters. Is going, well, you can squat three times your body weight. Yeah, your squat is strong, but you are not strong as a sprinter because you are weak at the point of contact. They got him stronger. You know, he uses a lot of the, uh, was it a lot of the Kaiser like uh, machines that give you the peak power um, readings? Readouts. Yeah. So he was looking at, you know, he has, his, has all of his sprinters do uh, calf work on the Kaiser and he's looking at, you know, what are their readings? Mm-hmm in each leg. And it's like, it's amazing to me that people acknowledge all these ideas from the knee up and then they forget them all from the knee down and they, they, you know, demonize lifting. And it's like, yeah, if you neglect a huge component of the whole equation, like I've never seen anyone run without a track or without the ground, you know, like if you figure that part out, then maybe we don't need to worry about that anymore. And, you know, maybe you got a point, but until then, you know, every, you know, Usain Bolt, his first step takes longer than his 20th step. And that is the same for every single fast sprinter throughout the history of mankind. And what that says is, you need to be like, you can't get to the faster ground contacts unless you're strong enough to go through the slower ones first. Mm-hmm. And if Usain Bolt was even stronger, then he would be able to access a faster ground contact time. Yeah. Right? Like his he's only hitting, his speed barrier is literally a barrier of strength relative to his body weight. Mm-hmm. Because the faster those times come down, the less of your strength you can access, you know, that's just budgeting. You know, this is, this is a concept of economics, really. You know, like if (laughs) you're only going to spend X amount of your money on lunch, right? 
So if you want to have if you want to have you know one hundred and twenty dollars sushi plate every day, then what do you need? You need more money. Strength is the currency. Mm-hmm. So as those foot strikes get faster and faster and faster, it mean like they're more and more expensive because you can only you can only spend a proportionate number of that strength. You can only spend a, a relative number, which means that your absolutes have to be high enough to make your relatives high enough. Mm-hmm. And so to take this all back to uh, you ask about sprinting. Um, so I look at, I look at, you know, jumping is rate of force development yep. and a jump is essentially a fast squat. If you squat fast enough, you jump, right? Yep. Yep. So the, the governing force, the, the limiting force on jumping is your ability to produce force through something, you know, it through a motion like a squat. So if I can squat, if I can squat more relative to my body, um, and with the caveat of if my foot and ankle, if my ankle, you know, that whole joint structure of my ankle, my forefoot, my toes, if those can all apply similar force, then the squat is a, is a slow jump. Mm -hmm. So if I want to jump higher, I need to be able to squat more relative to my body. And again, in my system, we're hammering our foot and ankle all the time. That is never going to be the weakness. So if you can squat it, you can jump it. Running, sprinting, um, if squatting is way over here on one side of the force velocity curve, sprinting is way over here, jumping is here, acceleration is here. So if we look at jumping as rate of force development, max V... I think of it as speed. You know, we have we have uh, absolute strength over here, absolute speed over here. The jumping is a developmental quality of absolute strength. Acceleration is a development as uh, a developmental quality of absolute speed. Absolutes have primacy over the developmental component. So, the more room I can create over here by having more access to more force and then can i get my body to move even faster it almost doesn't matter if you're working on acceleration or max like if your max v is going up and your absolute strength is going up everything in the middle is going up if you're if you're pulling both sides of the force velocity curve everything in the middle is going up Mm -hmm. If you're only working on acceleration, you're going to run into the problem of at a certain point, like you're going to need more elasticity to, uh, to accelerate faster. Right. So what's the, what is the, like, what causes adaptation to elasticity? Oh, sorry. You oh, have no. to have really. Sorry. I didn't know. Uh, you yeah, yeah, pause. Moves. I was like, oh, man, is he asking me this question? <laughs> so what causes adaptation yeah. to elasticity? You'll need stronger, thicker tendons. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's the adaptation. What causes that, that, that adaptation. So stronger, thicker tendons that can, uh, that can absorb and create that force in a tighter window. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what gives you that? 
for me, I think uh, working on maximal intent plyometrics and then long duration isometrics. What, what, what component of those maximal plyometrics does that? The constant loading of that tendon. Because if you're just spring, spring, spring all the time. What do you, what do you define as a plyometric? Uh, I'm going to say the shortest ground contact times possible. What's it? What's, what's the shortest ground contact time possible? I see where you're leading me. Sprinting. Yep. Yeah. Love it. How high, like, I don't have a force plate, so I haven't run mm-hmm. this, but how, how high do you have to drop from to get four times body weight? P- pretty high. When you hit the ground. Yeah, pretty high. Pretty high, right? Or you can just sprint maximum velocity. Mm-hmm. And you'll get it on each each leg. How fast is that ground contact going to be? Yeah, 0.2 to 0.3, depending on how fast someone is. No, it's going to be faster than that. You're going to be in probably the one-tenth to uh, 15 one-hundredths. I need to brush up on that then. Okay. If yeah, if you've got an elite sprinter, now you're talking about sub one or sub one-tenth. So how many... Um, you know, like how many plyometrics do you really know of where you can have that ground contact time under two tenths? Yeah, not many at all. Not many. You ha- And you have to have a pretty strong person just to do that, just to technically. Now you think about like, in order to do that, what kind of force? What do you have to do to the force? Yeah, it has to be very high. You have to bring it. Well, no, you have to bring the force. I'm saying to do a traditional plyometric. Yeah, low force. You have to bring the force way, way down in order for the person to actually get back off the ground within two tenths of a second. Or you can just go run max V. Yeah. And you're going to be hammering, you know, on each leg. You're going to be hammering, you know, three to you got someone extremely fast, maybe five times body weight per leg. If they run essentially a 40, let's say the first five to 10 yards are not max V, but that's going to give you maybe 15 more steps. Let's say 12 more steps where you're within that range of it being, you know, a plyometric. So you're getting about six reps in a couple seconds at an intensity level far beyond what you could do in plyometrics. Mm-hmm. It, like as people traditionally do them an intensity level way beyond what you could do in plyometrics, but staying within the ground contact parameters. Mm-hmm. Most people do plyometrics as this extensive thing. You can do it as an intensive thing. It's called max V. So from that standpoint, like even in sport where, you know, again, I, I worked for the NFL and did a bunch of combine and scouting stuff. Um, you know, and guys will talk about like, well, alignment only needs, you know, those first five to 10 yards. You go, sure, but don't you want to see how elastic they are? Because the elastic ones are the ones that are going to perform better on the field. You know, like that's also why they should be doing max V sprinting all the time is even if your sport doesn't actually need speed, I bet you need quickness. I bet you need, you know, I bet a shorter amortization phase is, is valuable to you. So it's, a, a, this is sort of what I talk about where like, 
someone can say something over here and I connect it to something over here because while the words change, you know, the, the language changes and it causes us to shift how we like what we look at it and how we associate it. The actual physical concept is the same. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in like thinking about, you know, we, we normally phrase things in the manner of like fast and slow. Well, humans don't do anything fast. Yep. Humans are slow at everything. Even when we're moving fast for us, it's actually still slow. Mm. You know, humans are weak. You know, Dave Hoff is pretty is pretty strong compared to me. But if we go to the zoo, you know, yeah. there are cages that have like 12 Dave Hoffs in them. And then they have one like mega Hoff in the back that all the all the little Dave Hoffs listen to. Like. We're not good at much, <laughs> you know, like. And even then, like our brains still aren't developed to be able to handle, you know, the idea that we can readily store and access information that is outside of ourselves. We're not even evolved for the life that we live. Like, so if you constrain everything to the spectrum of just like how humans exist, like it's a very, it's a very like narrowing myopic way to view things. Mm -hmm. But if you strip everything out and just go like, you know, it's all just raw math you know, like, again, like, I wasn't a power lifter growing up. I needed to be stronger, though, to throw the shot put further. Mm-hmm. I needed to be stronger in my hamstrings and glutes so that I could run a faster 40. I wasn't a naturally, a, a, you know, I wasn't naturally like a, a an athletic specimen. I didn't play a single down my freshman year of, of football. I couldn't get, you know, I couldn't get in the game. But I knew that if I worked out, I would get faster. And I did. I shaved probably a, a second plus off of my 40 in high school. Now, we had, you know, everything was hand-timed back then. But, you know, if you look at every other marker, I know enough to know, like, well, I was, I was statistically at least pretty fast for my size. And that wasn't because, you know, that wasn't because of my genetics. I have a kid that I train right now who he's, uh, he's an undersized baseball player. His dad is a pro scout. Okay. Um, and his dad came to me, this is maybe three days ago. His, his dad came by, he was in town. He doesn't get to, you know, he, he doesn't get to stay in, in Tallahassee because we don't have any pro teams. Um, but he he's one of the head scouts for a major MLB uh, franchise here. One whose number one pick just went viral for a squat video. Um, and he said, you know, he he brought his kid with him. They were doing they were doing a tryout, and he brought his kid with him, and they ran home to first, and they ran sixties. And he said his kid ran. They used a twenty to eighty scale. His kid ran north of 70 in three different events, which would basically to run a 70, you're in like the six, five range and a 60. So he hopped in with the pros and he was one of the fastest kids at, you know, an MLB tryout. Um, And he's, you know, 15 years old. He can't even drive himself to workouts yet. Um, but he said to me, he said, you know, like the reason I make sure my kid is always here and does not miss 
is he said, you know, that kid, that kid runs nearly 22 miles an hour on a fly 10, which means his peak might be 22.5. If you, you know, put GPS on him, he'd be 1.2 miles an hour faster. So he might come close to 23. Um, but he said that kid, that kid wasn't, he wasn't just always fast. He said, you know, like he was tiny and he was slow. He's still tiny, but he's gotten strong. And the stronger he gets, the faster he gets. Mm-hmm. He said, when I'm looking for, you know, the kids that we're going to invite to camps to, to try out and the kids that we're going to, you know, sign for double and triple A and the kids that we're going to ultimately draft. He's like, I'm not necessarily looking for strong kids, but I've never drafted a weak kid. Hmm. He said all the kids who are fast enough are strong enough. And he's like, you know, he's, he said he, he sees what people write on the internet and he sees, you know, he hears some of the, the talking points that their new hires in the organization, you know, who, who come in the weight room that they all say, and he's like, you know, I this isn't my field, but I understand from looking at thousands of people over the years, I've never seen someone who was who was fast enough who wasn't strong enough. He says, I've seen kids who look strong enough, but they're not really. Mm-hmm. And he said, and I've seen people who are strong and fast, but they can't see a ball. Said, so, you know, sorry, can't do anything about that. But there's a surplus of kids who can see a ball. And are not strong enough to be fast enough. Mm-hmm. I like that. Like, yeah, that's really good. Sorry to derail you, but no, uh, yeah, I just had to get that. No, I like I had that to get because that it's, that's an important point. Yeah. yeah, as soon as you started talking, especially when you got into the um, wide stance belt squat marches um, that you do twice mm-hmm. a week after your lower body days, man, I, I the only thought that was going through my head was like, oh, frick you. Like, gosh, it's so smart, right? And just the the talking about the the foot, the ankle complex and how you don't trade. I, I found myself years ago at a conference saying, like, I have not once trained anything below the knee, right? And, like, yeah. think of the, the disservice I was doing to my athletes. And I only noticed that after I started timing them. And so I guess mm-hmm. the the basis to my initial question was, like, you know, why, why were you so much smarter than I was, you know, after years of being into it, like what was your aha moment, uh, hoping you had one or a similar story to me. So I didn't feel as, uh, not not, really. not it was, I mean, I, I mean, like those are, those are things that like, again, those are things that I got from Louie, mm-hmm. but those are things that Louie doesn't I mean, a lot of, a lot of people who are, um, you know, on the, on Twitter again, um, there's, there's a lot of talk about like Dunning Kruger and, you know, like everyone wants to point to Dunning Kruger number one, like as though that's something that affects everyone. And number two, as though that's something that people are even certain, you know, like actually affects anyone, you know, um, and not just a, a study with uh, bad data. But part of that, 
part part of the flip side of Dunning Kruger, and it, it's it sort of dovetails into um, imposter syndrome, is the assumption that, and it's something in in marketing that I've I've talked to people about. People make a big deal about things that they can't understand, mm-hmm. right? Like, in order for you to get to your, you know, get home every day, you have to, you know, pack up your bags and load up your car, and your car has to have gas. But you don't, you don't start every conversation bragging about how well your car made it to whatever location you're in. Mm-hmm. It was a fundamental, like it was, it was a, a, such a fundamental aspect of it that it's, it's completely like just a given that we, you don't harp any time on when things seem sensible to you and obvious, um, the tendency is that we downplay them, right? Like, so if, if someone explains something to you, you know, like if, if a car mechanic really explained something to you and made it seem super easy, you know, like genius is, is simplicity. Genius is making the complex simple. And really everything is complex and everything is simple. Everything is the same. Um, but we, we like hold certain concepts up as, as being harder and, or, you know, hold certain things up as being easier. Um, but so like with Louie, if something seemed obvious to Louie, if he wasn't like figuring it out, he probably didn't talk much about it. Right? Like we talk about the things that we're excited because there's still potential within them. And the things that seem so obvious uh, that they, they must be simple because they are simple, but no one's done them before, you know, or like or it's it's new to whoever you know it's such a simple concept but you just had never been pressed to think about it mm-hmm. now if someone came up to you and they said hey you know i you know coach kerr i'm slow because my calves are weak i'm slow because my ankles are really weak if they provided you with that like stimulus you would go oh here's an easy answer for that and you'd give them a ton of of work for that area so like you have the, you know, like I'm not, I didn't say anything that's special. Mm-hmm. Like I said something that nearly a hundred percent of people inherently know. Even people who aren't strength coaches know like, you know, yeah, that, that seems like it would be advantageous to, you know, that'd be like if I said, you know, did you know that having strong hands and wrists is good for a boxer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd be like, I don't think anyone has ever told me that, but yeah, I knew that mm-hmm. somehow. Like, yeah, I'm going to slam my hand into something. Yeah, my hand should be strong. It's just the same thing. I'm going to, I'm going to slam my hand, my foot into the ground. My foot should probably be strong. But then everyone gets caught up in. Uh, again, there's, I think especially, it's worth noting in the way that I look at all this, like my education background is in filmmaking. You know, like I do not have a CSCS. I did not go to school for any of this. Um, yet every single line within West side versus the world has a citation. Wow. 
you know, like I, if you've never made a documentary, you don't understand that part. Mm -hmm. Like every single thing in there has a citation for, for legal, everything in there. There's, there's added footage. There's, you know, if one person said it in an interview, I might've used the one person who said it, but I had 12 people say it on camera. Mm -hmm. You know, like no one just threw something out there and I said like, yeah, I'll put that in because it's wild. It's, no, everything is corroborated. Every single word of the movie has has citation. It's, you know, it's like a living, you know, it's a living scientific paper in a sense that I've just dressed up to be entertaining. Um, but... Again, I got presented this stuff by my dad who was trying to fix like fix problems that I had. And he got presented this stuff by Louie and by Dave Tate and you know by all of everyone. Every bit of it is problem solving for an actual problem. I think that people forget that. Every single exercise you've ever seen was created for an actual problem. And almost every single time that actual problem was for one individual. And it's almost never uh, something that's even intended to be like a permanent fix. It's almost always, you know, a glaring weakness or a, a glaring concern causes the, the coach or the athlete to go, man, if I could just do something that did this, you know, if I could, if I could rig a band up there that, you know, I remember when I was trying to squat 545 to a 12 inch box and I missed it. And I was like, I feel like there's, when I'm in the hole, I feel like there's like a hole in my hamstring. Mm -hmm. So I rigged up some bands to the top of the squat rack and I literally just laid on the ground, moving my, my heel up and down with the band on it, trying to find what's the exact angle that hits exactly where I felt like I was missing something. And as soon as I found that contraction, I just stayed right in that groove. Now, would that work for someone else? Sure, it would work for someone else, but would that work for everyone else? Hmm. No, because not everyone's going to have my leverages. Not everyone's going to have my tie-ins. But I used a con, like, so for somebody else, maybe they have to do it a slightly different way. So you start thinking about, you know, every little way that my kids squat, we don't do powerlifting squats. I don't tell my kids where to put their feet at all. You know, as they get stronger, their feet are naturally going to start to move out further. Mm. But that's like, and even that is a, these concepts of like, in a given time, these things will work, but they'll have to shift over time as an acknowledgement of the training that came before them. Your training today should be setting up your training for a month from now, a year from now. You know, like whether you're trying to or not, your training today is setting up the future. But like we use, I remember I was getting, this is a couple of years ago at the last school, we were using a hard box with like a, a garden kneeler yep. for foam. It's almost like a kickboard type material, but a little softer just a little spongy. So we had a 12 inch or a 13 inch hard box 
with uh, an inch and a half garden kneeler on top of it. And we were using just straight bars because that's all I had. And I went and I visited Jared Bidney at Explosive Mechanics. And I was up there for two days. And the first day, I just kind of said, like, hey, man, can I go, like, walk the floor or whatever? And he kept asking me, you know, like, what questions did did I want to ask? And I said, like, I don't think I even asked him a question the first day. I just walked around and I wanted to see meticulously, like, how did he set up everything? Because he talked about, like, he sets up his box at 12 inches. And he tried going down to 11 inches and the kids started running slower because he tests 40s every month. And so, and they're, they're all in beam hand start, you know, with the same splits, same indoor facility. So there's no weather or anything, just kid after kid, every single month getting a data point. And he said he tried raising the box one inch because he had adjustable boxes. He raised it one inch. The kids could use more weight but they ran slower. He dropped it an inch. The kids could use less weight and they ran slower. So he zeroed in on 12 inches seemed to be what got the most improvement out of the most kids. And he said, I don't, uh, I don't know why. And he used a soft box and he, uh, or a soft topper that was like six inches. And he tried a, a lower topper and, but it was harder. Didn't get the same. Because that soft topper was was providing more leg drive, or was causing more leg drive, so the kid can't leverage off the box at all with a soft topper. You know, powerlifters tend to like harder boxes; they can leverage more with their hips, especially like geared lifters. Mm-hmm. But they have that gear, and you know, they they squat with a different stance and whatnot. My kids all basically squat essentially with like their jump stance, which is going to be leg drive sort of dominant. Their shins are going to angle forward. And that deep, we go 12 inches with a four inch super soft foam pad. And that 12 inches is important because squatting is, it's not just jumping, vertical jumping. It's also acceleration. Take a squat and tip it forward. The knee coming up in relation to the hip and driving back down straight underneath. That's acceleration. Upright max V running is more of a hip hinge movement. So it's more of a deadlift. So to compare squatting to sprinting doesn't really make sense once you get upright. It should be deadlifting to to sprinting. But if you go look that up on PubMed, no one's done it. Uh, Even though it's, to me, very obvious. Um, But so, you know, in talking to Jared, he said that thing about, you know, well, when I lower the box, this happens. When I raise the box, this happens. When I use a safety squat bar, they get a little faster than if I use a straight bar. He's like, they get faster all the time. But if I tweak any of these variables, they don't get quite as fast or they get faster. So... We try to set up our, our boxes. I call my 12-inch box our sprint box. If you're slow, you don't get much leg drive. It doesn't really matter how deep you squat. But as you get faster, you get more leg, more leg drive, which means your knee is going to start coming higher relative to your hip. And even though your foot's only on the ground for that, you know, however long, that force that's going into the ground is the result of from the top position of the knee driving down. 
right? So the more leg drive you have, you have a greater range of motion driving down. You're creating more force, more momentum. You're also taking a little more time. You're maximizing, you know, all, all of your leverages essentially to hammer into the ground. But so if you got fast and you're squatting off of a high box, when you jump optimally, uh, using a higher box actually helps you jump higher because it lines up more with what the jump looks yeah. like. But jumping high is worth less to me than running fast. So we take our squats down lower so that they more closely mimic the acceleration and drive phase of a fast sprinter. So I lift my kids with the assumption that they will eventually be strong enough to be fast. So that at no point do they get so fast that they're no longer supporting the type of strength that they need to continue going faster. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. No, I love it. I I, I like that quote of jumping high is worth less than sprinting fast because I – I would agree in, in many senses, obviously a a volleyball player might disagree a bit, but no, I'm, I'm with you there, Matt coach. You've given a a ton of phenomenal quotes here. And as we're approaching kind of, or if we've already surpassed the two hour mark, I just keep thinking in my head, I want to talk to you again. So I don't want this first one to be like, I don't want you to, uh, tomorrow be like, poof. That really took it out of me. Um, so Ross, do you have anything else, any other kind of big rocks to kind of ask or, or uh, you know, anything on the top of your head here? No, this has been great. Uh, I'm just over here processing. I'm out here feeding <laughs> Sophie. Uh, She's playing on the ground. It's a whole thing. It's been great. How old is um, she? She's eight, nine months. Eight, nine same, months? Same, yeah, same ballpark. All right, my turn yeah, she, nine she, months in... Is this a 30-day month or a 31-day month? 31. No idea. 31? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> in four days, mine turns nine months. Yeah, Sophie was born on Halloween last year. Oh, yeah. We were born so, on the first. So There you go. There you go. So, yeah, we're in that eight, nine-month window. Uh, yeah, I tell you what, man. Um, and really kind of what got me going here on, you know, listening, obviously, with all our talks mm-hmm. here is how everything is tying back mm-hmm. to sprinting, which is literally what I tell uh, I tell the kids, I tell our coaches. Like it doesn't, I don't care about everything else mm-hmm. unless it's making you faster, you know, whatever that looks like. And I like. had one, one caveat, which Please. is sort of, it's, so it all ties back to sprinting. And if you've, if you're lasering like a bunch of kids and especially you're, you're going to be lasering younger kids, um, mm-hmm then you'll see um, you'll see this concept. If you, like, especially when I had my football players, we would do, you know, we were doing fly 10s all the time. We would basically do fly 10s twice a week, starting 10s twice a week. So we'd be doing acceleration twice a week, max V twice a week. Um, and I still like doing that. Uh, I value max V higher because it means more potential, essentially, for the acceleration. But then um, on Fridays when I'd have less kids, but I'd still have kids who would want to stay till like 5.30 um, every day. But I'd be like, you know, we already did four hard workouts. I'm not going to, I have nothing left for you. Like we're not going to do another heavy squat workout or another max effort workout, which is what they all wanted. 
So I said like, all right, well, what we'll do is we'll work on like combine type drills. So we'd run, you know, three cone, we'd run shuttles. And I started showing my coaches this, but like your younger kids are really fast in the starting 10. Mm -hmm. And then they don't have a great top speed. And then you'd you'd take those kids, you know, so you could line them all up. Even when they started to get a a better max V, you'd see that the older kids would crush them in the change of direction. And it's because like, if you quote, like I could correlate my squats to our uh, pro shuttles or five ten fives, And there was a higher correlation between squats and pro shuttles than there was between squats and starting tens. And it's because you need that strength to, you know, decelerate, you know, to, to slow down into that cut, to provide the forces that will counteract your momentum into the cut, and then to reaccelerate out of the cut and do that again and do that again. So the stronger you get relatively, you know, as as things like game speed and whatnot are big talking points uh, these days, your ability to handle change of direction is also going to be predicated on how much force you can absorb. Mm-hmm. You know, so as you get, it, so that's another part of like, I care about speed, but at the end of the day, I really care most about speed as another stimulus. Like I, I care about just expanding the whole plane. Uh, and so ultimately like speed is one of the most highly prioritized things and it's made most accessible by adding as much strength as you can relatively but then also, even in the, the circumstance where sport limits how much speed you can display, again, the, the governor on that is how strong are you? Because the stronger, you know, the relatively stronger kid will be able to come to a stop faster and will be able to accelerate out of the, the brake faster. Versus you can kind of, you know, around the edges, at least, you can kind of technique your way in. This is when you get like track kids who can't turn and stuff. Number one is they simply just don't know how to. They don't understand that, like, that they have to slow down. So you simply just, if you can teach them that, then all of a sudden, you know, like I I used to have kids run six sixes in the laser time six sixes in the three cone. Pretty, you know pretty consistently six, 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 seven. These were regular kind of times for us. Um, and you go to the NFL combine and with a hand timer, those are phenomenal times, you know, that no one, you know, on certain years, only one or two people will hit. Um, but all of that like kind of ties back into, you know, number one, does the kid cognitively understand the task at hand? And then from a physical sense, in how we value strength, we have to understand that like how we are evolved through our life cycle. Before puberty, you cannot create much force. 
And again, our bodies do not understand that we live in relatively safe and, and coddled societies. Our evolution is we're still afraid that lions or bears are going to get us, right? You could still get separated from the pack. And, you know, how do you, how do you save yourself when, uh, when you do not possess the force needed to create distance and displacement from you and a predator. Kids have really fast firing rates in terms of how their central nervous system communicates with the rest of their body. Inefficiently fast. You know, their, their central nervous systems are like overpowered in terms of the speed that they send messages. So kids are really quick. So you watch a kid run, you know, say on your setup, I'm going to like, if you watched a kid run, what's a really fast 10 in your setup? A fly 10 or a starting 10? 1-5. One 1-5? Five. One five? Okay. Um, yeah. So you could probably, you could probably take a fast like 7th or 8th grader and they'd be hitting close to 1-5. And you go, oh my God, I've got a genetic freak here. And then you take yep. your older kid who runs a 1-5 and time-wise they're neck and neck. And if you went out to a 20 that older kid absolutely blows that younger kid away. And if you put them both on video, what you'd see is that older kid, you know, might only take five steps, six steps during that, that start 10. And that younger kid will take seven or eight. So he's getting more steps in, which means he's cycling his feet over faster. He's getting his feet down faster. But the whole thing is that he can't produce much force. Now, if you give that kid, you get that kid stronger while regularly timing him in that start 10, maybe he, maybe he keeps that stride frequency high. But if not, he hits puberty, all of a sudden he gets testosterone and his body changes. He gets stronger. He can't cycle his feet as fast. But he creates so much force per step that he's able to create displacement. So he's got speed to actually get away from a predator. But if you didn't have speed, the biological response would be you must, you're going to have to be quicker and you're going to have to react in between the points at which that larger predator can react. This is partly why things like, you know, humans are faster than like snakes in terms of like a snake bite, you know, like our yeah. reflexes are actually faster. It's because we're so damn slow. Like that's a bio it's, you know, how, how does this, you know, how does this organism here that has virtually no defenses against wild animals, like how does it survive? How does Steph Curry survive in the NBA being, you know, now he's, you know, he's been in the weight room a bit, but when he first came in, he was slower than everyone else. He was smaller than everyone else. He was shorter than everyone else. And the coolest thing was if you watched a slow motion highlight, Watch a slow motion highlight of somebody like Steph or like Iverson back in the day, Jordan. When you watch these athletes who, who you know, but especially with Steph, because Steph was not fast. He couldn't create room. He couldn't create displacement. But he could get his shot off simply because when you watched an extreme slow motion, like as they were cutting, you know, to commercial and the da 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 da, da the music was coming in and they'd show his highlights 
if you looked at Steph's eyes, they almost looked like they were moving full speed. And you look at the defender's eyes and they're trailing like severe lag the whole time. And that Steph's body was basically working like a camera that could crank up to a higher frame rate. So he could identify things and make decisions in between the intervals that the defender could. So you don't have to be as fast if you can get the the other person to start shifting this way and you can decide I'm going to come back this way before they've even recognized that that's happening. Hmm. You're just asking people constantly to get out of your way and they go, okay, I guess I'll go over here and you go, great. Thank you very much. You know, three in your face. Um, no, it's a great point. That's yeah. a really great point because the, because, yeah, there's a couple. I mean, I'm talking a real fast zero to 10 for me mm-hmm. is sub six. It's a one five something. Yeah. And, but I got a lot of middle schoolers that'll hit one six, which is pretty close. Yeah. yeah like yeah. you said, it takes but off. It's, and, it's, and it's really, it's also that they're getting to a much higher percentage because they don't have a high max V. So that means also that they're the space needed for them to hit max V because they have short strides. And they're not going that fast ultimately. So they're able to ramp up to an extremely high percentage very quickly. Now, if you continue training them through that change of puberty, they can retain a much high, like they can retain that profile. And that's where you go like, oh man, this guy like has crazy acceleration the rest of his life. But if you're not providing the stimulus and the feedback mechanism of like a laser, they're not regularly getting that. They'll start to lose that. And you'll be able to give them back the speed through strength of just getting stronger, more violent extension to propel you into the next step, but they won't be able to cycle into the next step as fast. So the dream is that you start them early enough and with a severe enough stimulus and you just don't you know, do anything stupid and you don't break them, but you give them a severe enough stimulus and enough constant feedback mechanisms Providing feedback increases the stimulus sometimes at a rate of, you know, five times as fast or five times as much. Hmm. So if you're always giving the, you know, like there's this trend of wanting to slow cook everyone and take away steaks because they're young. It's like, no, let's do the opposite. They're the most pliable time in their life. Let's give them more feedback. Let's let's Hmm. gamify it. Give them give them a game to beat. They'll, they'll figure out how to, you know, they won't listen to a damn word you say, but they'll see their time get better. They'll see their score get better and they'll adapt to that. And they'll adapt to that way faster than you would. And I think it's interesting too, just bringing up the, the, you know, extending the runway and mm-hmm. slow cooking, all that kind of stuff, which I've done both. I've been on both. I've been on both sides. Yeah. And I think you, you, in one of your podcasts, you were talking about, and when you said it, a lot of things were clicking for me of, you know, as a whole at the high school level and youth level, you know, we're going to work with 99% of the time, very average kids, mm-hmm. you know, not really freaks. And at my last stop, there was out of any kid of all the kids I worked with, I would have called considered too elastic. Mm-hmm. All the rest were not. Yeah. And I've got a few more here. But it's interesting because it's like, okay, as we know, the the average kids are going to need a lot more force to keep up. 
with the elastic you kids. throw the basketball down harder. The, yes. And the elastic kids are already there. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like at the last place, uh, elastic athlete could just hammer RDLs at 275, like first day for fives or his trap bar deadlift was, you know, 315 plus, like it's, like it's nothing. Mm -hmm. And went from a mid four seven to a mid four five. Mm -hmm. Now with that's with that lead and yeah. it's all relative, but case in point, it's like, Oh, okay. And so the force piece, it's just, again, it's just I, the more I think of, of, you know, when we talk about maximizing specifically your average high school kid. Mm -hmm. And like you said, needing the ability to, to access higher levels in order to keep up. And I think that's quite frankly, I think that's something that I've missed on with a lot of kids I've had. And that's just being brutally honest. Mm -hmm. Now they've gotten stronger and they've certainly gotten faster, but by the end of, you know, when I get, if I get them in a, you know, five, six, seven year window and you're progressing them that time, cause that's the tough part. Yeah. Like that's the part with, I think with a lot of, uh, when, when coaches are having different conversations, they might see a kid for two years mm -hmm. or a year. And, you know, it's very easy to say that I don't want to take them too fast or whatever, but they're still seeing progress. Okay, man. But what are you going to do when you got five years mm -hmm. and the kid goes from a 200 pound squat to a 300 pound squat Yeah, in four years? Like that's a tough, that's a tough sell. Yeah. And, and it's way more, you're going to get so much, uh, well, let me go, I guess my point and my final point I'll make too, and why this all ties in and why I'm glad we talked to mm -hmm. you is that in Texas, powerlifting is a sport mm -hmm. and we're going to have 60, 80 dudes on our powerlifting team. And we're going to have 40, 50 girls. Now I don't, and I don't coach powerlifting. we got two guys that do a great job and our girls team is, is actually pretty good. Like they were a top three in the state last year in, in our division. Yeah. And, and so you have a lot of potential there and then we'll have kids that just come powerlift to powerlift. Like they're not coming, they don't necessarily compete. Like they're just coming to lift every day. Mm -hmm. And I was telling coach, I was like, Hey, can I take, give me like 10, give me just 10 random dudes that just want to train and maybe they don't compete for us, but they just lift. It was like, and let me, let me just, let me just take them off your plate. And we can do this stuff because we're also, our weight room is right next to an indoor, mm -hmm. a little 50, 60 yard indoor. And we got some sleds in there. We got all the good stuff. And I got, I got some thoughts, but I'm, I'm going to definitely uh, try a few things with our spring sport kids because mm -hmm. we're so far away and see what we can do. Uh, add a few things in winter, winter sports and football. I'll definitely uh, adjust to see when I get them after season and just hammer them from there. But yeah, man, uh, this has been unreal. This has been really good, really, really good yeah. stuff. Super grateful for the time, man. Like this, this is awesome. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. All right. Well, we'll uh, uh, just stay on the line here once we kind of hit this outro. But All right. uh, everyone, thank you so much again. Uh, make sure you are following all things that coach Fahey is putting out there. Are there any like weird social media accounts that you want anyone kind of pointed to there or is uh, the regular Twitter is all good for you? Regular Twitter is good. If you like stuff on Instagram, I'm mostly at Westside film. If you like movie and powerlifting related stuff, if you like coaching related stuff on Instagram and Twitter 
and threads if that ever becomes a thing or um yeah it's at burn the ladders so awesome yeah well everyone uh hopefully you got uh, a lot out of this as we did and then hopefully too you have uh, even more questions like i do of i want to go to the lab experiment a little bit and uh hopefully yeah you're you, you didn't uh hate your time too much with us coach and willing to come back again because uh it, no, it was, was awesome yeah there were a lot of points there and uh you were not as advertised you were better just as a, a heads up there for you so really really appreciate uh the thought of everything i don't know who's advertising me. uh i would say the the hours and hours of podcasts that you've had on there and then just my uh i came into this with prejudices of here's uh-huh. here's what his background is going to be here's probably what he's going to say a lot of and then yeah yeah uh, I've, I've listened to stuff that you said, but for some reason, a lot of things clicked today. So I was just like, yeah. dang, all right, this is it. This is legit. Um, but again, thank you so much for, for all your time. And ladies and gentlemen, that was another episode of Victory Over Self Radio. Uh, make sure you're tuning in and uh, we'll see you next time.